You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. When the Moon Turned Green by Hal K. Wells Part 2 Crawford shook his head impatiently. Destroying the camp would do no good. We must shatter the spaceship itself, if we are to extinguish those green rays in time to save our world. That is impossible if the spaceship is hovering up there by the moon, Dixon protested. No, it is not impossible, Crawford answered confidently. I have a projectile in my laboratory that will not only hurtle across that great gap with incredible speed, but will also infallibly strike its target when it gets there. It is a projectile that is as irresistibly drawn by radio waves as steel is by a magnet, and it will speed as straight to the source of those waves as a bit of steel will to the magnet. The Centaurians in the spaceship, Crawford continued, are in constant communication with their camp through radio apparatus much like our own. If you can pack a powerful contact charge of your explosive in my projectile, I can guarantee that when the projectile is released it will flash out into space and score a direct hit against the walls of the spaceship. I can pack the explosive in the projectile all right, Dixon answered grimly. We will need only a lump the size of an egg, and a small container of the heavy gas that activates it. The explosive itself is a radium compound that, when allowed to come in contact with the activating gas, becomes so unstable that any sharp blow will set it off in an explosion that in a matter of seconds releases the infinite quantities of energy usually released by radium over a period of at least twelve hundred years. The cataclysmic force of that explosion should be enough to wreck a small planet. "'Good,' Crawford commended weakly. "'If you can only strike your blow tonight, Bruce, our world still has a chance. If only you—' The old man's voice suddenly failed. He sank back in utter collapse, his eyes closed, and his last vestige of strength spent. Knowing that the old man would probably remain in his sleep of complete exhaustion for hours, Dixon turned his attention to Ruth. To his surprise, he found her sitting up, apparently completely recovered. "'I'm quite all right again,' she said reassuringly. "'I've been listening to what Uncle told you. Go ahead and prepare your explosive, Bruce. I'll do what I can for Uncle while you're working.' Dixon donned his lead-cloth hood and tunic again, and set to work. Ten minutes later he turned to Ruth with a slender, foot-long cylinder of lead in his hand. "'Ruth, will this fit your uncle's projectile?' he asked. "'Easily,' she assured him. "'But isn't it frightfully dangerous to carry in that form?' "'No, it's absolutely safe now, and will be safe until this stud is turned, releasing the activating gas from one compartment to mingle with the radium compound in the other section.' Then the cylinder will become a bomb that any sharp jar will detonate. "'All right, let's go, then,' Ruth answered. "'Have you any more of those lead clothes that I can wear? I could wear the globe headpiece that Uncle wore, but it would loom up in the dark like a searchlight.' Dixon did not protest Ruth's going with him. There was nothing further that could be done for Emile Crawford for hours, and in the hazardous sally to Crawford's laboratory he knew that Ruth's cool courage and quick wits would at least double their chances for success in their desperate mission. He provided her with a reserve hood and tunic of lead cloth, then handed her a tiny leaden pellet. "'Keep this for a last resort,' he told her. It's a contact bomb that becomes ready to throw when this safety catch is snapped over. I wish we had a dozen of them.' but that's the last capsule I had, and there's no time to prepare more. He fished a rusty old revolver out of a drawer, and placed it in his pocket. I'll use this gun for a last resort weapon myself, he said. The action only works about half the time, but it's the only firearm in the place. 
The green moon was still high in the sky as Ruth and Dixon emerged from the tunnel, but it was already beginning to drop gradually down toward the west. Dixon wheeled his disreputable flivver out of its nearby shed. With engine silent, they started coasting down the rough winding road into the valley. For nearly two miles they wound down the long grade. Then, just as they reached the valley floor, they saw, far up among the rocks to the left of the road, the thing they had been dreading, the bobbing, opalescent globe that marked the presence of one of the centurion's hideous hybrids. The shimmering globe paused for a moment, then came racing down toward them. The need for secrecy was past. Dixon threw the car in gear and savagely pulled down the gas lever. With throttle wide open, they hurled around the perilous curves of the narrow road, but always in the rocks beside and above them they heard the scuttling progress of some huge, many-legged creature that constantly kept pace with them. They had occasional glimpses of the thing. Its pale, jointed body was some twenty feet in length, and had apparently been developed from that of a centipede, with scores of racing legs that carried it with startling speed over the rocky terrain. The flivver raced madly on toward the blaze of kaleidoscopic colors that marked the centurion's camp. Crawford's home loomed up now barely a hundred yards ahead. As though sensing that its quarry was about to escape, the hybrid flashed a burst of speed that sent it on by the car for a full fifty yards, then down into the road directly in front, where it whirled to confront them. Dixon knew that he could never stop the car in the short gap separating them from that huge, upreared figure and to attempt swerving from the road upon either side was certain disaster. He took the only remaining chance. With throttle wide open, he sent the little car hurtling straight for the giant centipede. He threw his body in front of Ruth to shield her as much as possible, just as they smashed squarely into the hybrid. The impact was too much for even that monstrous figure. It was hurled bodily from the road to crash upon the jagged rocks at the bottom of a thirty-foot gully. There it sprawled in a broken mass, too hopelessly shattered to ever rise again. The fliver skidded momentarily, then crumpled to a full stop against the rocks at the side of the road. Dixon and Ruth scrambled from the wreckage and raced for Crawford's home, scarcely fifteen yards ahead. They entered the laboratory, and Ruth went directly over to where the radio projectile rested in a wall rack. Dixon took the gleaming cylinder down to examine it. Tapering to a rounded point at the front end, it was nearly a yard long and about five inches in diameter. "'The mechanism inside the projectile is turned off now, of course,' Ruth said. "'If it were turned on, the projectile would have been on its way to the spaceship long ago, for the radio waves are as strong here as at the Centurion's camp.' The girl pointed to a small metal stud in the nose of the projectile. "'When that is snapped over, it makes the contact that sets the magnetizing mechanism into action.' she explained. Then the projectile will go hurtling directly for the source of any radio waves within range. I don't know the nature of its mechanism. Uncle merely told me that it is the application of an entirely new principle of electricity. Dixon laid the long projectile down on the workbench and began packing his lead cylinder of explosive inside it. He had to release the lead cylinder's safety catch before closing the projectile, which made his work a thrillingly precarious one, for any sharp blow now would detonate the unstable mixture of gas and radium compound in one cataclysmic explosion. He sighed in relief as he finally straightened up with the completed projectile held carefully in both hands. "'All we have to do now, Ruth,' he said, "'is to step out from under this roof and snap that energizing stud.' 
Then this little package of destruction will be on its way to our Centaurian friends, up there by that pestilential green moon. Ruth stepped ahead to open the door for him. With the end of their task so near at hand, both forgot to be cautious. Ruth threw open the door and took one step outside, then suddenly screamed in terror as her shoulders were encircled by a long snake-like object that came whipping down from some vast something that had been lurking just outside. Dixon tried to dodge back, but too late. Another great hairy tentacle came lashing around his shoulders, pinning his arms tightly and jerking him out of the doorway. He had a swift, vague glimpse of a hybrid looming there in the green moonlight, a tarantula hybrid that in size and horror dwarfed any of the frightful products of Centaurian science that he had yet seen. Before Dixon had time to note any of the details of his assailant, another tentacle curled around him, tearing the projectile from his grasp. Then he was irresistibly drawn up toward that grisly head where Ruth's body was also suspended in one of the powerful tentacles. The next moment, bearing its burdens with amazing ease, the giant hybrid started off. Dixon tried with all his strength to squirm free enough to get a hand upon the revolver in his pocket, but the constricting tentacle did not give for even an inch. The only result of his effort was to twist his hood to one side, leaving him as effectually blindfolded as though his head were in a sack. Long minutes of swaying, pitching motion followed as the hybrid sped over the rocky ridges and gullies. It finally came to a halt, and for another minute or so Dixon was held there motionless in mid-air, dimly conscious of a subdued hum of activity all about him. Then he was gently lowered to the ground again. While one tentacle still held him securely, another tore away his hood and tunic. Almost immediately the hood was replaced by one of the protective white globe devices, in half-blinded bewilderment as he got his first glimpse of the earth camp of the Centaurians. The place, located on the smooth rock floor of a large natural basin, seemed a veritable cauldron of seething colors which rippled and blended in a dazzling maze of unearthly splendor. But Dixon forgot everything else in that weird camp as his startled gaze fell upon the creature standing directly in front of him. He knew instinctively that the thing must be one of the Alpha Centaurians, for in its alien grotesqueness the figure was utterly dissimilar to anything ever seen upon earth before. Life upon the shattered planet of that far-distant sun had apparently sprung from sources both crustacean and reptilian. The centaurian stood barely five feet in height. Its bulky, box-like body was completely covered with a chitinous armor that gleamed pale yellowish-green. Two short, powerful legs, scaled like those of a lizard, ended in feet that resembled degenerated talons. Two pairs of slender arms emanated from the creature's shoulders, with their many-jointed, flexible length ending in delicate three-pronged hands. The scaly, hairless head beneath the centaurian's white-globe device bore a face that was blankly hideous. Two great lidless eyes, devoid of both pupils and whites, stared unblinkingly at Dixon like twin blobs of red-black jelly. A toothless, loose-lipped mouth slavered beneath. Dixon averted his gaze from the horror of that fearful alien face, and looked anxiously around for Ruth. He saw her almost at once, over at his right. She was tethered by a light metallic rope that ran from her waist to one of the metal beams, supporting the great shimmering ball of opalescent fire which formed the central control of the hybrids. 
One of the white-globe devices had been placed upon Ruth's head, and she was apparently unhurt, for she pluckily flashed a reassuring smile at Dixon. Directly in front of Dixon, and some forty yards away, there was a large pen-like enclosure, with vari-colored shafts of radiance from banks of projectors constantly sweeping through it. Dixon drew in his breath sharply as he saw the frightful life lying dormant in that pen. It was a solid mass of hybrids, great loathsome figures fashioned from a score of different worms, insects, and spiders. The globes upon the gruesome mammalian half-heads were still dark and unfired with opalescence. The invaders had apparently raided most of the surrounding country in obtaining those grafted half-heads. Near where Dixon stood there was a tragic little pile of articles taken from the centurion's victims—prospectors' picks, shovels, axes, and other tools. Over to the left of the dormant hybrids stood the second Alpha Centaurian, curiously examining Dixon's projectile. The creature apparently suspected the deadly nature of the gleaming cylinder, for it soon laid it carefully down and packed cushions of soft fabric around it to shield it from any possible shock. Then, at an unspoken command from the first Centaurian, the great hybrid whirled Dixon around to face a small enclosure just behind him, in which were located banks of control panels and other apparatus. One of the pieces of mechanism, with a regularly spaced stream of sparks snapping between two terminals, was apparently a radio receiver automatically recording the broadcast from the spaceship. Dixon was unable to even guess the nature of the remaining apparatus. "'Bruce, be careful,' Ruth called in despairing warning. "'He is going to put the thought-reading machine on your brain. Then he'll learn what the projectile is for, and everything will be lost.' Dixon's mind raced with lightning speed in the face of this new danger. He stealthily slipped a hand over the revolver in his pocket. There was one vulnerable spot in the great hybrid holding him, and that was the opalescent globe on the creature's head. If he could only smash that globe with one well-directed shot, he might be able to elude the centurions for the precious minute necessary to send the projectile on its deadly journey. The hybrid began maneuvering Dixon toward the instrument enclosure. For a fleeting second the grip of the tentacles upon his shoulders loosened slightly. Dixon took instant advantage of it. Twisting himself free from the loosened tentacle in one mighty effort, he whirled and fired point-blank at the opalescent globe on the head looming above him. The bullet smashed accurately home, shattering the globe like a bursting bubble. The great hybrid collapsed with startling suddenness, its life-force instantly extinguished as the globe burst. Dixon leaped to one side, and swung the gun into line with the centurion's hideous face. He pulled the trigger, but there was no response. The rusty old firearm had hopelessly jammed. Dixon savagely flung the revolver at the centurion. The creature tried to dodge, but the heavy gun struck its body a glancing blow. There was a slight spurt of body fluid as the chitinous armor was partly broken. Dixon's heart leaped exultantly. No wonder these creatures had to create hybrids to fight for them. Their own bodies were as vulnerable as that of a soft-shelled crab. The centurion quickly drew a slender tube of dark green from a scabbard in its belt. Dixon dodged back, looking wildly about him for a weapon. There was an axe in the pile only a few yards away. Dixon snatched the axe up and whirled to give battle. The other centurion had come hurrying over now to aid its mate. 
Dixon was effectually barred from attempting any progress toward the projectile by the two grotesque creatures as they stood alertly there beside each other with their green tubes menacing him. Dixon waited tensely at bay, remembering those searing radium burns upon Emile Crawford's body. Then the first centurion abruptly leveled a second and smaller tube upon Dixon. A burst of yellow light flashed toward him, enveloping him in a cloud of pale radiance before he could dodge. There was a faint plop as the protecting white globe upon his head was shattered. The yellow radiance swiftly faded, leaving Dixon unhurt, but he realized that the first round in the battle had been won decisively by the Centaurians. His only chance now was to end the battle before the paralyzing rays of the green moon sapped his strength. He warily advanced upon the Centaurians. Their green tubes swung into line, and twin bolts of violet flame flashed toward him. He dodged and the bolts missed by inches. Then Dixon nearly fell as his foot struck a bundle of cloth on the ground. The next moment he snatched the bundle up with a cry of triumph. It was his lead-cloth tunic, torn and useless as a garment, but invaluable as a shield against the searing effects of those bolts of radioactive flame. He hurriedly wrapped the fabric in a rough bundle around his left forearm. The next time the tube's violent flames flashed toward him, he thrust his rude shield squarely into their path. There was a light tingling shock, and that was all. The bolts did not sear through. With new confidence, Dixon boldly charged the two centurions. A weird battle ensued in the garishly lighted arena. The effective range of the violet flashes was only about ten feet, and Dixon's muscular agility was far superior to that of his antagonists. By constant whirling and dodging, he was able to either catch the violet bolts upon his shielded arm, or else dodge them entirely. Yet in spite of the centurion's clumsy slowness, they maneuvered with a cool strategy that constantly kept the earthman's superior strength at bay. Always as Dixon tried to close with one of them, he was forced to retreat when a flanking attack from the other threatened his unprotected back, and always the centurions maneuvered to bar Dixon from attempting any dash toward the projectile. The minutes passed and Dixon felt his strength rapidly ebbing, both from his Herculean exertions and from the paralyzing rays of the green moon beating down upon his unprotected head. As his speed of foot lessened, the centurions began inexorably pressing their advantage. Dixon was no longer escaping unscathed. In spite of his frantic efforts to dodge, twice the violet bolts grazed his body in searing flashes of exquisite agony. His muscles stiffened still more in the attack of the green sickness. Desperately dodging a centurion bolt, he stumbled and nearly fell. As he staggered to regain his balance, one of his antagonists scrambled to the coveted position behind him. It was only Ruth's scream of warning that galvanized Dixon's numbed brain into action in time to meet the imminent peril. In one mighty effort he flung his axe at the centurion in front of him. The heavy blade cut deep into the thinly armored body. Mortally wounded, the creature collapsed. Dixon whirled and flung up his shielded left arm just in time to intercept the violet bolt of the other centurion. Warily backing away, Dixon succeeded in retrieving his axe from beside the twitching body of the fallen invader. Then, with the heavy weapon again in his hand, he remorselessly charged his remaining foe. The centurion's tube flashed in a veritable hail of hurtling violet bolts, but Dixon caught the flashes upon his shield and closed grimly in. One final leap brought him to close quarters. 
the heavy axe whistled through the air in a single mighty stroke that cleft the centurion's frail body nearly in two. Then Ruth's excited scream came again. "'Bruce! The other one! Get it! Quick!' Dixon turned. The wounded invader, taking advantage of their preoccupation in the final struggle with its mate, had dragged its crippled body over to the instrument enclosure. Dixon staggered toward it as fast as his half-paralyzed muscles would permit. He was just too late. The centurion jerked a lever home a fraction of a second before Dixon's smashing axe forever ended his activities. The lever's action upon the pen of inert hybrids was immediate. The sweeping lances of light vanished in a brief sheet of vivid flame which kindled the dark globes on the hybrids' gruesome heads to steady opalescence, and the dread horde came to life. Sprawling from the pen, they came scuttling toward Dixon in a surging flood, a scene out of a nightmare. Dixon faced the oncoming horde in numb despair, knowing that his nearly paralyzed body had no chance in flight. Then, just as the hybrids were nearly upon him, he heard Ruth's encouraging voice again. "'There's still one chance left, Bruce,' she cried, "'and I'll take it.' Dixon turned. Ruth had in her hand the tiny contact grenade he had given her for a last emergency. She snapped the safety catch on the little bomb, then hurled it squarely at the giant opalescent globe looming close beside her. There was a terrific explosion, and the great globe shattered to atoms. Apparently stunned by the concussion, but otherwise unhurt, Ruth was flung clear of the wreckage. With the shattering of the central globe, the strange life-force of the hybrid horde vanished instantly and completely. Midway in their rush they sprawled inert and dead, with their outstretched legs so close to Dixon that he had to step over one or two to get clear. Dixon's brain reeled in the reaction of relief from the horde's hideous menace. Then he grimly fought to clear his fast-numbing senses long enough for the one final task that he knew must still be done. The projectile, cushioned as it was, had escaped detonation in the blast. He had only to stagger across the twenty yards separating him from it, then release the stud that would send it flashing out into space." But his last shred of reserve strength had nearly been sapped now by the insidious rays of that malevolent green moon. Even as he started toward the projectile, he staggered and fell. Unable to drag himself to his feet again, he began grimly crawling with arms and legs as stiff and dead as that much stone. Only ten more yards to go now, and now only five. Grimly, doggedly, with senses reeling and muscles nearly dead, the last survivor of a dying planet fought desperately on under the malignant rays of the vivid green moon. One last sprawling convulsive effort, and Dixon had the projectile in his hands. His stiff fingers fumbled agonizingly with the activating stud. Then abruptly the stud snapped home. With a crescendo whistle of sundered air, the projectile flashed upward into the western sky. Dixon collapsed upon his back, his dimming eyes fixed upon the grim green moon. Minutes that seemed eternities dragged slowly by. Then his heart leaped in sudden hope. Had there really glowed a small blue spark up there beside the green moon? A spark marking the mighty explosion of the radium bomb against the Centaurian spaceship? A fraction of a second later, and doubt became glorious certainty. The vivid green of the moonlight vanished. The silvery-white sheen of a normal moon again shone serenely up there in the western sky. 
With the extinguishing of the dread green rays, new strength surged swiftly through Dixon's tired body. He arose and hurried over to where Ruth lay limp and still, near the wreckage of the great globe. He worked over her for many anxious minutes before the normal flush of health returned to her white cheeks and her eyes slowly opened. Then he took Ruth into his arms, and for a long minute the two silently drank in the beauty of that radiant silver moon above them, while their hearts thrilled with the realization of the glorious miracle of awakening life that they knew must already be beginning to rejuvenate a stricken world. End of Part 2 And End of When the Moon Turned Green by Hal K. Wells